0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to Rolinda Speaks. We're back with a brand new episode. If you are joining us for the first time, we're happy to have you. And if you've been rocking with us uh, so far, we're at episode five. All right. We're we're just going to keep going. If you were here last week, you may recall that we had trauma expert and therapist LaShonda Coleman uh, with us to help us unpack how we process grief and trauma in the era of the pandemic. Pandemic, and I have her back this week because I wanted her to help us unpack grief and trauma um, as we process events that unfold on the news cycle. And in particular, you will recall a story out of Georgia with Ahmad Arbery a 25-year-old African-American man who was jogging in his neighborhood and was senselessly killed by a father and son who, you know, have uh, ties to law enforcement. They're not law enforcement, but they have ties to law enforcement. And this particular case happened in February, but we all just got wind of it. Um you know, late last week, and it really shook us to our core and there was a lot of conversation and discourse around uh this particular issue as we continue to see hashtag after hashtag of unarmed black men and black women as well uh looking for justice and and that's really you know what part of the the conversation is, but in particular, what uh sparked uh this continued dialogue between uh, myself and LaShonda, uh, was first that we were seeing this video of Ahmad Arbery's murder uh, being circulated uh, on social media, and it just seemed that I didn't watch the video, personally, I'll have to say, because it was I knew it was going to be too much. Um, but as the video continued to surface and be circulated, and then it ended up being on the news, it really got me thinking about this question of, When we see these videos, are we in some way becoming re traumatized, or because we've seen senseless murder after senseless murder? have we become desensitized? So that was one of my first questions that I wanted to unpack with LaShonda. And then uh, we also get into the conversation surrounding a new case that surfaced earlier this week um, with a young woman named Brianna Taylor, who was an essential worker. She was an EMT um, in Kentucky, and she was sleeping in her home. And uh, the police entered her home. They were actually at the, uh, the wrong home, entered her home unannounced and ended up uh, killing her. And her boyfriend is actually in jail right now for attempted murder. And it's this awful, tragic case of this young woman with so much life ahead of her. And again, these senseless murders, you know, at the hand of law enforcement or those who are law enforcement adjacent and really opening up uh, a national conversation around these issues and I have to say I'm tired as many of you are and um we, we just can't accept this anymore. And, and we're gonna have to all roll up our sleeves and think about what kind of world we wanna create for ourselves, but also for the future generation. And it's gonna be on all of us. It, it can't just rest on the shoulders of uh, those who are marginalized, on black people, on people of color. It has to be a collective uh, effort and collaboration To not just maintain a system because that's what I think we've been doing I think we've been learning to live in a system right we've been learning to navigate a system and what I'm interested in doing is thinking about how we can disrupt the system because that's where the real justice happens and although right now thinking about the Ahmad Arbery case yes we have two gentlemen a father and son who are currently in jail But uh, this is going to be a long, drawn-out process. There uh, isn't a a formal conviction. There isn't uh, a a verdict that has been rendered. And so we're, we're not at the place of justice, because justice would be that this incident wouldn't occur to begin with. And so, again, I'm interested in disrupting systems and so that's what a lot of our conversation will be today so again thanks for joining in today on this very important conversation and here we go
1: hi Relinda, it's so great to be here with you my thoughts about the Ahmad Arbery case and the circulation of the video that captures his murder uh, my thoughts about that are first and foremost um, absolutely horrific Uh, I watched the video and uh, in watching the video there was this moment where I needed to decide why I would watch the video knowing that it would be uh, activating and knowing that it would be traumatizing to witness this man's life being stolen I decided that it was important to view the video to humanize Ahmad uh, beyond a hashtag, to understand uh, the grief, to understand the um, trauma of that moment and every moment after for that family. And so I did view the video consciously, knowing that I was doing so because Ahmad Arbery and so many other black and brown human beings uh, whose lives have been stolen are worth my pause and, and rec- recognizing and seeing them as human beings. And, and so I, I did watch, I, I also grieved, you know, I noticed in my body that it was difficult to sleep, to eat, to focus, concentrate after viewing the video. And so I would say for those of us who are consuming these images, of his life being stolen or um, other situations, whether it's Breonna Taylor, Sean Reed, it's important to understand how it's impacting our bodies uh, to track the sensations in our bodies. Notice that our heartbeats are accelerated. Notice the tension in our muscles. Notice the um, sense of dread, fear in our hearts and to address it, to care for ourselves as we're watching, after we're watching, to be intentional, to journal, to uh, process our reactions, to reach out to a therapist to process what's coming up for us in these situations. It's important to engage in self-care as we're consuming these images, meaning we're taking in these stories, these narratives into our beings. It's also important to know when it's time not to watch, when it's um, necessary for us to turn away from the video or from the news coverage as a way to create a healthy boundary. And so if we're not sleeping, if we're becoming um, hypervigilant in, in a way where now it's difficult for us to engage the world around us, if we need to take a break, then it's, we have total permission to do that. Uh, to create uh, boundaries and how much we're taking in, especially during a time of COVID, this pandemic, where it's already a very um, traumatic situation where we're in survival mode uh, most of the time. And so I do feel that uh, the circulation of this man's execution, Ahmaud Arbery's execution, on social media also has the potential to be exploited in many ways. If we're um, passing this image around as though his life uh, represents an object and not that this is an actual person whose life was stolen. And that's where I would really caution us as, as, as people, as a nation to understand that these are human beings attached to relationships to people who are mourning still. And so um, I just think that, you know, it could be a situation where it becomes very objective, uh, but we, we as, as people have to decide how we're participating in the consumption of this, um, these videos and this information.
0: LaShonda and I have a candid conversation exploring concepts such as intergenerational trauma, as well as, depending on your identity and experience, do we experience trauma differently? So for example, in thinking about the deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, is the black community experiencing a different level of trauma as compared to our white peers or other peers of color? LaShonda had a thought or two to share with us. Take a listen.
1: We, um, we talk about trauma, we have both implicit and explicit memory capsules that hold the stories for us. So the implicit is our bodies holding the somatic reactions to what we're witnessing. And, and so what this looks like is, you know, explicit memory, knowing the story of Sandra Bland, um, a woman whose life was stolen as well um, to racialize violence, in my opinion, and misuse of power and and authority when I'm driving and law enforcement um, is near me or behind me with all the respect that I have for law enforcement and not committing any and I'm not committing any crimes implicitly my body remembers how Sandra Bland's life was stolen my body remembers the countless um, black and brown human beings whose lives have been threatened, harmed, and stolen at the hands of racialized violence um, through some law enforcement officers and the lack of accountability there. And so in those moments, my body is remembering. And so my heart is beating at a faster rate. I may begin to sweat. I feel my mouth drying. I'm going into this uh, survival mode and, and I've not committed any crime. Right. So that's that implicit memory capsule opening up and and then explicitly I'm I'm able to notice and track what's going on in my body. And then maybe it's after the threat has passed, the perceived threat or real, because I don't know what's going to happen in those moments. Um, Then after that, I'm able to to sit and ground myself and ask, what was that? Like, why did I why did I feel this surge of dread come over me? And it's because I know the stories. I know the stories. I know the stories of the Eric Garner's. I know the stories um, of how black and brown people, um, you know, you can't sell CDs. You can't um, you can't go to the store and buy a pack of Skittles and, and 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 fruit punch and walk home without being perceived as a threat. And it's not only a perception, but it becomes a matter of life and death and there's no justice in between, and there's there's a lack of, of fairness in, in these situations. And so um, that implicit and explicit memory um, that we hold in our bodies and our minds, it it definitely impacts how we react to these situations even after time has passed.
0: So now that we understand more fully that trauma does impact communities differently, I wondered how or what can employers do to help support their employees who may be from these different backgrounds, who may need a different level of support and therapy, especially thinking about right now in the era of COVID-19, Black people are experiencing some real trauma. You have on one end having this disproportionate uh, number of deaths and uh, knowing that so many Black people are essential workers. So we have that challenge that we're dealing with because there isn't the ability always to socially distance. And then coupled with seeing the tragic deaths of Ahmaud Arbery and Breonna Taylor, it seems that black people in many ways can't catch a break and should their employers be thinking of ways to help support them because they're living a double traumatic experience. And so I think it's important and incumbent upon employers to be thinking about this as opposed to glossing it over as if things are back to normal or things are normal for this particular community.
1: You know, when I think of going to work um, after we witness yet another um, terror uh, terrorized crime against um, black and brown people. Um, when I when I show up the next day, you know, it's some, I, I'm showing up my full self and I'm holding this grief and I'm wondering, has anyone else been up all night unable to sleep because of the fact that it took weeks for the, the McMichaels to be arrested? And it wasn't until we saw the video footage and applied the pressure as as people, black, brown, white, and said, where is the justice here? Um, That something was done, that the case was moved to a jurisdiction where there wasn't bias or a conflict of interest. And so we carry that into our workplace the next day. We carry that into the church the next day. We don't just leave it over to the side um, it's not a movie, it's not a swipe left, swipe right. This is reality and we carry it with us whenever wherever we go as black and brown people with different perspectives about the issue. And, and so for me, I know that it's important that in these spaces that I, I I do life in, that there is a space to talk about, to talk about this. Um, I remember going to church after Trayvon Martin's life was stolen, and the uh, church that we were attending at that time, there was no mention of Trayvon Martin. There was no mention of what happened and the grief that was over an entire community. No mention. And that was that was beyond not okay with me. And it was in those moments that I said, well, this um, is not a place for me because if we're talking about um, living out our purpose in our lives when that is stolen from us because of racialized violence and it's not talked about in this in this form in this setting um, I wonder does it matter I wonder does it matter and so um, yeah it can be difficult to move in and out uh, the world with this additional grief this complex trauma this vicarious trauma that we live um, you know I'm I'm when we think about the communities we work in, it's like, yes, we're at work, but then when we leave work and we're driving home, it's that fear of, you know, could the same thing happen to me?
0: So we've heard of the talk where black families have to sit their sons down and also their daughters uh, to tell them how to. Make it through encounters with law enforcement or the behaviors that they have to alter uh, to not be perceived as threatening or too confident or not respectful. And I feel like, you know, this is tone, an example of tone policing where black children learn from an early age uh, of having to suppress who they are. Um, as a survival tactic, uh, code switching, um, to be able to be perceived in the good graces of the dominant culture. And so uh, that brought me to the question of, if Black families are having the talk, what Are white families doing. It can't just be one community that's having a conversation about how to survive and how to feel safe and we know that that's happening. There's one community having a conversation. What's happening with our white counterparts and what can our white families do? What can our white mothers do, our white fathers, uh, to teach their children about um, this biased and system that is double standard, and so I wanted to explore this conversation with Lashonda because there's a disconnect here. We have, um, you know, a lot of well-meaning, well-intentioned white people who are wanting to know what can they do. So Lashonda had some thoughts for us on how and what white parents uh, can do? What does it mean to be an ally? What does it mean to stand up for others? What does it mean to have unity in a struggle? And how we're not all free until everyone is free. And what does it mean to be in solidarity and stand in solidarity uh, for the liberation for all? Take a listen.
1: When I think about our children and how we process these attacks on our lives, our black and brown um, children, adults, people who wonder, oh, you know, that could have been me jogging, that could have been my brother, my uncle, um, it could be my sister who was sleeping in her apartment and um, gunned down. Um, it, these people who look like you and I, um, it's important for us to process this grief, this trauma with our children. And so I do talk to my children about these issues. I titrate it. You know, what I talk to my 17 year old son about is very different than my seven year old daughter. And I think it's important to talk with them to speak truth because they have to exist in this world that unfortunately um, here in this country, we are judged on the color of our skin. When I walk into a room, there's no doubt that I'm a black woman. There's no assumption that I may be white. Um, and that's not the case for everyone. There are some identities that have this privilege of not um, it not being assumed that they're less than just by the way of uh, the color of their skin. Uh, they may not identify, assert their identity as white, but it may be assumed just by the very color of their skin. And so that already creates a different way in which they um, go about living and how the world interacts with them. And so I do talk to my children about these issues because as brown children, um, it's important for them to understand where they may be judged based on the color of their skin. And it's important even more for them to understand that they are worthy, that they are beautiful and valuable and loved, and there is no inherent wrong with them. That they not internalize those stereotypes that are projected onto them, um, but that they understand how to navigate the world because those stereotypes exist. Um, that is important. It's also important for me to talk with them so that I give them permission to use their voice, to hold, and that I hold space for my children to grieve. My son, upon learning about Ahmaud Arbery's murder, came to me and said, "Ma, I understand why." you were nervous about me jogging during the first few weeks of of covid and stay home um, i understand i understand he said i'm i'm actually scared to to go out um, he said i have to push past that fear but there is in the back of his mind the sense of well i hope that doesn't happen to me i hope as i'm jogging to um, increase my, my health and wellness um, that i'm not It's not assumed that I'm a criminal Um, and my son, you know, no criminal history an amazing leader um, Just an amazing human being He hopes that there would be this benevolent assumption presented to him in the way that he offers it to his neighbors that That he is not um, Wanting to harm anyone he is not looking to harm or violate anyone and so it's important for us to be intentional, to hold space for our children, to give them uh, tools to process. And so, you know, I paint with my children. Um, we sit, we talk, we create music together. We, we process these issues and this grief. And we, we mourn together and with those families who have lost their loved ones um, because of racialized violence.
0: So here's this... Quote that I always use when I am facilitating difficult conversations in relationship to diversity, equity and inclusion. And it goes a little something like this. We didn't create the system, but we all function in it. And if we are going to disrupt the system and build a new one that is equitable and brings justice for everyone we're going to have to, one, recognize that we all participate in this system. And once we recognize that we all participate in the system, then we all know that it's our responsibility, our our collective responsibility to disrupt this thing. And so here are four thoughts to consider that I think are applicable for those who want to show up and be allies and they're not sure how they begin, how they start, here are, are four things to consider. The first is you have to lean in. You have to lean in to discomfort. And oftentimes when we put ourselves in situations that may be uncomfortable for us or out of our comfort zones, that's where we have the most transformative moments of growth. The second is that we have to continually educate ourselves, whether that's reading, whether that's, you know, listening to the Relinda Speaks podcast, being informed, really being mindful of where we're getting our information from, educating ourselves, bringing a level of awareness to these issues. We can't pretend as if we live in a bubble and somehow because it's affecting or impacting one community it doesn't impact all of us it does and it will manifest in the most horrific of ways and and that's not what we should be waiting for we want to be proactive not reactive listening listening to understand versus listening to respond listening to the stories of people of color listening, listening, listening. Then once we take our our listening, we can then produce it into action. And I'm gonna challenge not the action of a post. That's one place to start. And that might be where that might be a big moment for someone. So I don't want to disregard The idea of posting to bring attention because you may be able to reach someone in your circle that otherwise I wouldn't be able to reach personally because of my identity. So I don't want to disregard posting, but I also think that let's take our action to a different place. So if we start off with posting, where could the next step be? And then where could the next step be? So continually challenge ourselves, challenging ourselves to speak up and speak out and speak often. I think if we think about all of those things together, I think that there is the opportunity for us to build solidarity with each other. It's not to say it, it won't be easy and it won't be without tension. But that's okay. Let's lean into that tension. Let's lean into that discomfort. And remember, we didn't create the system, but we all function in it. And the real question is, how do we wanna function? Do we want to function where everybody thrives, not in spite of, but because of who they are? Or are we going to settle with this social and racial hierarchy That continues to divide communities where some of us are having talks and other communities aren't having talks what kind of world do we want to create
1: I hope that you all find um, tools that can help you to navigate these waters during this challenging time and I Uh, Pray for the families who are mourning the loss of their their children their loved ones who have been stolen due to racialized trauma um, which is uh, perpetuated because of this myth of white dominance and and supremacy and until we name things what they are we will continue to see this vicious cycle of of terror and um, There's something that we can do about it. We create the culture Our attitudes beliefs and those who are uh, in positions of power real or perceived uh, those who benefit from this system the way that it is created and the way that it functions um, it's important that they um, decide how they would either um, give up that that sense of entitlement and um, and speak out against the injustices or not and so um, Thank you for this opportunity to join you today, uh, Relinda, I appreciate uh, the work, the great, important work that you are doing and the spaces that you create for meaningful dialogue. Um, so let's keep speaking, let's keep talking, and let's keep moving. Action.
0: Lashonda thank you so much for joining us and sharing your expertise your wisdom but more importantly your heart and your empathy thank you and I know you'll be back to visit us in the near future thank you everyone for joining us on the Relentless Speaks podcast we'll be back next week with a brand new episode hit that subscribe button and leave me a review I want to know what you're thinking in the meantime, hit me up on Instagram and Twitter at Rolinda Watts. Take care. Be well. I'll see you next time. Bye.